Dominic Robb has gone. Westminster waited weeks for the investigation into the former Justice Secretary's behaviour to be sent to Rishi Sunak and then had to hang on a few more hours for the Prime Minister to issue his response. In the end, Robb jumped first with a resignation letter and a Telegraph op-ed, which made very clear what he thinks about it. In short, Robb is not happy. So we've reassembled the IFG podcast team on Friday afternoon to react to Adam Tolley's report. Dominic Wilde's resignation and Rishi Sunak's response. Joining me today are an IFG duo who have worked in government and know a lot about what makes a good minister, and sometimes a bad one. That's Alex Thomas and Jill Rutter. Hi, Hannah. Alex, what did you make of the Tolly report? My first reaction was that it was a thorough piece of work. It was comprehensive. It went through systematically the uh, allegations. It was definitely written by a lawyer. Um, uh, No one else could have uh, uh, approached it in in that way. I also thought it was interesting that he alighted on the specific, sort of far more kind of comfortably than the the general. The um, allegations that he dismissed were the sort of group allegations around the MOJ because they were describing an atmosphere or, or kind of were drafted by committee. The one that he particularly focused on one of the ones that he particularly focused on was um, an allegation around something that happened in the Foreign Office where he was quite, you know, he described it quite general, quite generally. Dominic Raab went into more detail in his, uh, uh, in, in, in his Telegraph article, perhaps erroneously. But because that was a sort of specific incident, it felt like Tolly could investigate that incident, get into the particulars, you know, almost be closer to inside the meeting room where behaviour is alleged to have... Um, uh, taken uh, taken place, and that is one of the areas that he concluded that that Dominic Raab had been intimidating and um, uh, and had not behaved uh, appropriately. Um, so I sort of I sympathised with the difficulty of his task, and I also think when you kind of when you looked at each individual case, there were allegations that were dismissed. There were areas where he couldn't reach a conclusion. When you looked at the totality of the report, it did seem fairly clear to me that whatever Dominic Raab thinks about it, the Prime Minister didn't have much choice other than to uh, either dismiss him or accept his resignation. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was left with the the feeling that had there just been that one uh, allegation, the one um, about the Foreign Office, I mean, there were two allegations upheld, but had there just been that one uh, in the report, that would have been... Uh, seen as a, as a sort of bang to rights case for resignation. Um, but Dominic Raab, as we'll come to, um, ch- chose instead to sort of emphasise the, the fact that this was two out of eight, uh, which which had been upheld. I also thought it was notable how, you know, Raab, as it is right, but uh, Raab had clearly litigated the process. Uh, you know, for, for a man who didn't like his decisions to be litigated, we learned from the report, had obviously litigated this process, you know, very, very thoroughly. And so what Tolly therefore needed to do in the report was to show how he had handled each of, the, each of those bits of litigation uh, and he'd agreed with some and disagreed with others. My instinct, I've only read sort of through the report once and so this kind of initial initial take was that actually everything that Tolly said was pretty well reasoned. And so where Rob had a case, he had agreed with it. And where Rob didn't have a case, he'd, he'd dismissed it. Uh, and so, you know, and the, and the same applied to the, to, to, to the uh, allegations that civil servants had made. Jill, I guess another observation I had was that this, this didn't read at all like uh, the letter that we had from the independent advisor on ministerial interests as regards uh, Nadim, the Nadim Zahawi case. It, it was, as, as Alex said, much, much more of a, of a lawyer's setting out of the evidence. Yes, and he was asked to do something slightly different, of course, as well, to the independent advice. He wasn't asked to come to a verdict. He was asked to set out the facts. He was setting out the facts so that the Prime Minister could come to his judgment. And we, I think we read in the report that there was some extra material that was too confidential to be put in the report for us to read, but that we shared with the Prime Minister on the same basis being shared 
with the with Adam Tolley. So the Prime Minister had more material to have a look at. I thought there were some one or two other things that were interesting. I thought it's quite interesting. The two named officials in the report, the, two, the permanent secretary at the FCDO and the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Justice, um, both of them said that they'd had to speak to Dominic Raab about his behaviour, Antonio Romeo at Ministry of Justice, three times. And Dominic Raab contested whether there'd been any conversations there with him. And Tolly decided that actually he believed the civil servants, not Dominic Raab, which I thought was quite an interesting piece. But I think Alex is right. You got the sense there was quite a big tussle. You know, it's a bit of lawyer-on-lawyer action. Of course, Dominic Raab himself is a trained solicitor, that you'd got a bit of lawyer-on-lawyer action about the process before Adam Tolley could even get going, which I thought was, you know, clearly indicating that rather lengthy setup you got to about the process he'd had to go through and what he was taking into account. And Alex, was it relatively unusual that we saw Dominic Raab's resignation letter first and then had to wait quite some hours before we saw the Prime Minister's response and indeed the, the Tolly report itself? Would you not normally expect to see those together? Yeah, my, my suspicions as someone who used to be uh, sometimes involved in handling how these things uh, came out in a, in a past life, uh, my suspicions were raised a bit this morning by the fact that um, we had the Raab a resignation letter and then his article in the Telegraph uh, setting out his perspective on this and then only a little bit later uh, the, the Tolly report and, um, uh, and and the Prime Minister's response to Rob's uh, letter. Uh, I, I wondered whether either uh, you know, extracted as a price for Rob's resignation rather than a sacking, or because Rob went before Number Ten was ready. There was a, there was a bit of uh, a few shenanigans going on in order to enable Dominic Rob to get that you know few hours of a media hit to get his side of the story out. I do think it's really important that we, you know, obviously, what Rob says uh, and, and his view on this matters in, the, in 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 all of this saga. But we need to put that in the context of the Tolly report, which is the you know the core document here, rather than anything Dominic Rob might be saying in the Telegraph. Jill, I mean, I think Dominic Robb's resignation letter is possibly the best example of sorry, not sorry I've, I've seen for, for some time. What did you make of it? Not sorry, not sorry, I think. I'm not sure it's even sorry. Uh, I think it was possibly the least contrite resignation letter I have ever read. And I think that actually for people who were critics of Dominic Robb and suspected that there was justice in the complaints against Dominic Robb, this will have confirmed their every view from the sort of hectoring tone, the refusal to accept the legitimacy of his process and his, his self-portrayal as a victim. And when you look that, at that alongside his Telegraph article, clearly playing to sort of base. Um, and actually, I've been getting reactions, a reaction from a Conservative friend today who said, you know, this shows lefty civil servants can see off ministers they don't like. Uh, so, you know, there is that sort of, culture warry aspect going on and Dominic Raab of course has complained that in the Telegraph not in his letter that he's the victim of a campaign by unionized uh, civil servants civil service officials uh, and that this will potentially have a chilling effect on any minister who is seeking to impose high standards on the civil service drive them to deliver in a sense he's a victim of his own drive and ambition to try and get results in government. I mean, on the other hand, quite a lot of people would look at Dominic Raab's um, track record in government and say, actually, he was a pretty ineffective minister, didn't deliver much, and actually presided over some complete and utter shambles in the example of the evacuation from Afghanistan, where 
the political and official leadership in the Foreign Office was singled out for stinging criticism by the Foreign Affairs Committee, and that led to his removal from the Foreign Office by Boris Johnson and his initial posting to the Ministry of Justice. So I think it's slightly hard to stand up that that charge, and most ministers and civil servants, I think, would think you probably get better results by establishing constructive rather than confrontational working relationships, and then actually good policy-making doesn't tend to flourish in an atmosphere of intimidation. Yeah, and that, I mean, that conspiracy charge is also why I, it's one of the reasons I said you, you go back to Tolly, you go back to the, you know, the independent guy who's looked into all of this, and he says at various points, uh, you know, nothing to suggest that officials, even even where complaints were dismissed, were anything other than you know, committed uh, and acting in good faith. Uh, he talks at one point about there not being any evidence of kind of collusion or collaboration or people tailoring their stories to to fit together. So that is, you know, that's 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 the official view of the of, of the inquiry that that Dominic Robb himself um, uh, himself re- requested. And I think it's quite notable that Tolly singles out the bravery of the junior officials in the Ministry of Justice for initiating the first complaint, which even though he doesn't withhold that, well, uphold that because it's too general, actually says paves the way for more senior people to come forward with specific complaints. So I think it's quite interesting that Adam Tolley, you know, an employment KC appointed by Rishi Sunak to do this job, uh, comes to quite a different interpretation of what went on uh, than whatever. And rather than a sort of chilling effect, you could say that actually what Adam Tolley's report does is quite usefully start to sketch in that slightly blank zone where some ministers may not have been aware of what behaviour might start to offend against the requirements in the ministerial code to behave appropriately with consideration and respect and not to you know, indulge in bullying or harassment. And if they really were a bit vague on that, then at least Adam Tolley has set something of a standard that they can now benchmark themselves, you know, don't intimidate, don't punish, don't, you know, repeatedly humiliate. I agree with that, John. It goes exactly to the other point I was going to make, which all of this shows just how you know, poor and how much reform is needed in this system for looking into these complaints. Dominic Raab, rightly, understandably, complains that uh, some of these allegations date back two, three, four years when the standard kind of statute of limitations might be three, month, th- three months or six months. Um, but that's in part because, as you say, it took that um, kind of group of junior officials coming together. And it also took Rishi Sunak in an interview saying you know, any formal complaints will be investigated, but we haven't had any formal complaints. It took to get over that huge barrier, all of this media attention, all of this uh, focus on it, to, to not to Dominic Raab's benefit, not to the officials in, in, in various government departments' benefit. It took all of that to get to this stage where we have a thorough um, review of it. How much better it would have been had uh, complaints been made in a you know, calmer way, outside the media frenzy, civil servants not having to leak uh, uh, or not, not feeling that they, you know, they, they needed to, to leak, which I can't really defend, but you can see why if there's nowhere else to go, it happened in this in this case, if there'd been a mechanism, as we've argued before, to deal with these things in a slightly lower key way, recognising that it can only ever be the Prime Minister who's taking decisions about about ministerial futures. But um, but to do that somehow under the auspices of the independent advisor on ministerial interest, Laurie Magnus, have a group, you know, some a committee or some kind of group to look into these things and to take the heat out of it. Um, uh, but, but while giving everyone, ministers, civil servants, everybody else, assurance that there's a proper process that is followed. What I thought was really interesting was clearly 
the permanent secretary is assuming Adam Tolley is right and they did speak to Dominic Raab about his behaviour, which is what you'd normally expect to happen. If something's going wrong like that, you would normally expect that the permanent secretary would raise that with the minister and say, Minister, you should be aware. Can you please reflect on this? But that didn't have the required effect. So that, in a sense, was the was the way in which the civil service used to, you know, tries to deal with these things absent a proper, more effective process for elevating these concerns. So I think it's really interesting, could other press have done it? Because I thought one of the most intriguing paragraphs in the Tolly report was right at the end when Tolly notes that actually since the investigation started, Dominic Raab, now aware that he's being investigated, has changed his behaviour and that people in the Ministry of Justice agree that if he'd been behaving before like he's behaving now, there would be absolutely no cause for complaint or action against Dominic Raab. And frankly, Dominic Raab will be turning up for work on Monday as Secretary of State for Justice. So in a sense, he's also a victim, not of quite what he thinks he's a victim of, but he's a victim of having a system which doesn't actually call out ministers effectively enough and tell them, put them on notice, that really they do need to, you know, shape up a bit and put their behaviour into a sort of more acceptable place and then they can keep their jobs. I do agree with that, job, but there is the other interesting reference in the report that talks about, you know, because... uh, Dominic Robb wasn't accepting some of the uh, points that, that Tolly clearly found were convincing and put to him, that there was a danger that he might, you know, that the behaviour might be repeated. Alex, what did you make of Sunak's letter in response uh, to Robb's resignation? So I thought another interesting aspect of this, you know, clearly it was designed to uh, be a very supportive letter um, uh, to uh, give uh, Dominic Robb a positive send-off. Uh, Robb and Sunak have been allies for a long time. It reflected that. Uh, it was also, you know, the sort of usual, but perhaps even warmer than usual, recitation of achievements in, uh, in, in office. Um, <clears throat> probably the most interesting line, though, was this reference uh, to um, uh, historic, uh, he said quite early in the letter, he said, it's, it's clear there have been shortcomings in the historic process that have negatively effective, affected everyone involved. Um, so quite what um, Rishi Sunak meant by that, uh, I, I don't know. My suspicion is that it was a, a nod towards some of the concerns that Rob has about the, um, uh, about the complaints process. But as we were saying a, a moment ago, my actual view is that there are shortcomings in the process, but they're probably not the ones that Sunak and Rob think are the shortcomings. I thought it was actually a remarkable letter in the sense of ducking any um, statement from the Prime Minister on what Tolly's report meant in relation to, to what, what behaviours had been identified by by, um, by Dominic Raab, that he accepted the resignation, but he didn't say anything um, about the, the grounds for the resignation. Yes, I suppose it's a really interesting question because, as Alex said, these things are quite often choreographed, even to the extent that the resignation letter was also written in number 10 and presented to the outgoing Secretary of State with the, here's what you'd like to say when you're resigning and here's your signature on it. Um, the, but this one didn't give the impression of that. And I think it was a hugely missed opportunity for Rishi Sunak to take this, to take the sort of moral high ground here and say, Actually, I said I was going to have a government of, you know, the well-known IPA, uh, integrity, professions and accountability at all levels. And this is why you have to, you know, why I've had to reluctantly accept your resignation in the light of Adam Tolley's findings that you did X, Y and Z. And that is not something I can accept from a member of my ministerial team. But 
in a sense, the tone of Dominic Raab's letter, not the sort of churlish stuff, but the bit at the end about what a great prime minister Rishi Sunak is, made that a slightly more difficult letter to write, I think, because it's quite difficult to say, yes, I accept you think I'm a great prime minister, but can I just tell you why you're bang to rights on this one, mate? I mean, it's a bit harder to do in the light of the Raab letter, but I do think in terms of the prime minister's wider ability to sort of prosecute that agenda with any conviction. It's a real shame he didn't take the opportunity to lay down a standard for the way in which he wants, you know, the remaining 100-plus other ministers who've stayed in his government to behave and how he wants them to treat their civil servants. So I think he missed an opportunity there. Now, we recorded the rest of this podcast on Thursday with the Royal Report expected but not yet out. There was still plenty to discuss. Jill and Alex were with me and we were joined by IFG senior fellow and former government advisor Sam Friedman. Here's the rest of the podcast. I want to turn to the bigger question of of who gets appointed as a minister and why. Jill, do you think there's too much focus from prime ministers on loyalty and thinking about party management rather than the skills that ministers bring to the role? I think we've seen an increasing focus on party loyalty and... uh, and that there's always been a sense of having to balance factions within the party and, you know, and it's sort of apogee in some ways in the Blair Brown years when you could identify you know, which posts had gone to Blairites and which posts had gone to Brownites. But since Brexit and in particular Theresa May attempted to balance her cabinet and then Boris Johnson basically applied a pretty hefty loyalty test that you had to be prepared to back his approach and that then went even more extreme under Liz Truss has been rode back a bit bit against Rishi Sunak. But you never get the sense that appointing a cabinet minister is anything like the way in which you would appoint someone to run any other organisation, that you actually look at experience, skills, etc. Um, you know, so they are clearly very different appointments. In a sense, you know, obviously their permanent civil service are there to run the department there to give political steers, so we don't require managerial capabilities. But I think one of the really interesting things in the way we look at ministers is that we don't really have any sort of test about are they able to engage effectively with with their department and use this really quite big resource that they're supposed to be overseeing. Uh, We just ask some of the political questions. Do they perform in parliament? Do they have some backing on the back benches? Do they have maybe reasonable political judgment? But the question, are they actually capable of getting their departments to do the job in hand, rarely arises. And I think that's one of the really interesting question marks for me over Dominic Raab, because Dominic Raab clearly does not manage to build effective working relationships with a succession of departments. And the really interesting question is why the Prime Minister, as their effective boss, See why successive prime ministers seem so unconcerned about that? Because you could imagine if it was any other organisation, you would haul the guy in and say, look, it's not really good if you can't manage these basic relationships, if your staff turn over like tops and your department spend their entire life briefing about how awful you are, actually get a bit of a grip. Otherwise, however great a politician you are, I might have to lose your services because you're not a very good minister. So I think it's really interesting that we don't apply any of those criteria to ministers. And the civil service has always felt it just has to take whatever 
whatever you know the political party in government serves up and adapt around it and there are such low expectations of how ministers perform those roles when they come in it's almost worse than that though because not only is not only do 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 do, do prime ministers not sort of punish ministers who aren't able to form these relationships. Certainly part of the Conservative Party and a large part of the media see it as being an act of positive to not get on well with your civil servants and to have a bad relationship because it's evidence that you're really trying to push uh, a, a mission that these sort of left wokerati tofu eaters uh, are, are, are not prepared to go along with. So, you know, you, you've seen in some of the commentary about Rob and some of the commentary around Priti Patel when her bullying case happened that it, it's sort of actively seen as as as, as, as something we should be encouraging more of. Uh, and that, I suppose, puts prime ministers under pressure to not look like they're sort of giving in to this this sort of supposedly um, enemy faction. Uh, so so uh, I think that's a, not completely new, but it's that's a much growing, a sort of growing factor in this as well. And Sam, you work for Michael Gove, who's often held up as a minister who is good at getting things done. What's the secret? Um, so uh, Michael was quite interesting in this, in that he 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 never, I certainly never saw him raise his voice even in in a meeting. He 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 doesn't do things by sort of aggression and 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 upsetting people. You could sometimes tell he was getting upset in a meeting because his leg would start to vibrate violently. <laughs> That's how I could tell when it was time to clear the civil servants out, uh, and that he was he was he was he was unhappy. But he didn't sort of shout and scream. Um, what he he was good at identifying. Uh, people in departments who he felt were capable uh, and putting a lot of trust uh, in them, even if they were often quite junior. He was good at mixing civil servants with people from outside, like me, who uh, who who sort of added in something additional, but but could work with uh, the civil servants uh, as well. So I think what Michael Gove has, which very few of the current cabinet have, is a real theory of power of how to make something happen in a department. Uh, most of them just seem to get either not be particularly interested in making anything happen or just get incredibly frustrated when they can't get stuff to happen and then they get angry and start shouting and screaming at people. Um, whereas he actually thought about a theory of power uh, as, a way, as sort of an important tool of being a minister. Now, Alex, is it also partly about ministers having a, a realistic sense of how things get done in government is is sometimes some of that frustration coming from a place of not having experience of working through a large organisation. Yes, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And I completely agree on, I didn't work as closely with Michael Gove as, as Sam did, but I completely agree on that theory of power point. I mean, what, what Michael Gove was able to do, and that was often quite uncomfortable for some civil servants, particularly permanent secretaries who were trying to kind of police boundaries and things, was... Uh, use the uh, structures that he that he was able to influence to kind of advance his agenda, and had a real kind of understanding of how to do that. On the when I was thinking about what makes a good minister, to your question, uh, Hannah, and there's the there's the obvious stuff about you know being a good parliamentary performer and being able to set clear objectives and uh, and so on, but. Uh, and and it's also worth noting that you know, different ministerial jobs require different skills. So a junior minister in the Department for Work and Pensions implementing some complicated program is doing a very different job to a minister in the cabinet office who's trying to bang heads together or or whatever. So they they are different jobs, and prime ministers need to think about the right people for different jobs. But in the end, I think what what makes a really good minister is the ability to bring everything together, bring the political together with the operational, with the media side. Uh, and to do that job of synthesis so that you are um, translating a political programme into something tangible and real. I mean, the other observation, listening to 
to Jill and Sam is very few people have a full view of how good a minister is. So the civil service will have its view of the good and the bad ministers, uh, which is filtered through that kind of operational implementation, do they do their box kind of lens. The media definitely has a view that can be radically different uh, of ministers, depending basically on whether they talk to them or not, or whether they're kind of interesting to have lunch with and so on. Maybe I'm being unfair. Um, parliamentary colleagues will have another view again of ministers and the, and the political party will have a view. So it really is incumbent on the prime minister to be the person who thinks very carefully about uh, about the skills that ministers have in those political, presentational, parliamentary and operational spheres, because the civil service doesn't have a monopoly of wisdom on it, but nor does the media. There is a very ancient Institute for Government Reform about how to be an effective minister, which uh, actually highlights <laughs> in great technicolour the difference between the civil service view of what makes a good minister, which is ability to set, set direction, willingness to listen to evidence and things like that, and the political one, which is all about quality of parliamentary, you know, ability to uh, perform in public and things like that. So there is really sort of two sets. And as Alex says, you need somebody who can bring those two together. I mean, the sort of person who is focused on the implementation but can't do the politics, can't win battles in cabinet, uh, can't present the policy is a bit of a disaster. It's one of the reasons why actually civil servants, I think, quite often make really quite bad politicians because, you know, if they decide to change over because they don't get the politics and can't, can't do that. Close your ears, Keir Starmer. They close your ears. No, well, you know, <laughs> David, David... Who could you be thinking of, Jill? <laughs> I was actually thinking of Andrew Lansley as my sort of, you know, who I knew as a civil servant and who really failed with the politics of his NHS reforms, failed to present it and think about what actually was it trying to do? How would you convince anyone it was a good idea? So, which we discussed on the podcast last week. So I think there really are quite different skills. I think as a civil servant, one of the things you really want is, um, yeah, you do want direction from a minister. You're not there to substitute your views for theirs. You want direction, and that makes it quite exciting, particularly if, like Michael Gove, they set out quite bold and ambitious schemes for doing things. That can be very energising. But you also want the sense that you can get a reasonable hearing for some of the issues you come. The minister may decide to dismiss your arguments and your concerns, but you want the sense that they've engaged with them and rather than just sort of dismiss you as uh, with a whole bunch of uh, bunch of insults that Sam was coming up, you know. So, and I think the best ministers are those who are really willing to sort of you know listen, engage, and then make potentially quite a different decision, but say, actually, I've heard you, but I'm not persuaded. I'm convinced we should do this and this is how we're going to do it. And you know, I'm going to listen to your concerns about some of these things and we'll tackle it as a joint problem because basically government needs to be a joint enterprise. And that's where I think, you know, when you're concerned about these ministerial civil service relationships breakdowns, it ceases to be a joint enterprise and then it's really, really bad. And I think you have to go back and say, are there areas where we can look at policy is just happening really badly because ministerial civil service relations were sufficiently sufficiently bad that people didn't dare elevate concerns, couldn't have a rational conversation, couldn't sort of get in to see the minister when something was an absolute priority. And I do think it's really interesting, you know, to see how that plays out and various difficult subject areas. You really need ministerial civil service to be able to work effectively and come on their different domains and come together you know, for effective policy outcomes. Just to take this back finally to the the standards, uh, the narrower standards issue, 
is one of the things that the whole Dominic Raab episode has demonstrated, the inadequacy of sort of lower level processes within government departments for raising concerns about ministerial behaviour. That's something you wrote about for us a little while ago. Yes, in short, I, I, I do think it is. And, it, and it, it, it has highlighted the very kind of weird power dynamics, not all flowing in one direction, but that exist in departments and in private offices that are most directly supporting ministers. So, I mean, with all of the rub stuff, this is going back months now, a couple of the things that struck me. One is, you know, it is, it is really hard, it's really countercultural for a civil servant to make a formal complaint about minister. They might, you know, all moan about the boss, as it were. Um, uh, but, uh, but to make a formal complaint is a very big deal. And that's partly because any formal complaint races from, you know, potentially a very junior minister right to the prime minister's desk for the obvious reason that the prime minister is the only person who can make hiring and firing decisions. So uh, there's an asymmetry of uh, of 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 power and also of jeopardy there, I think. So one of the things that we suggested, and there's no perfect answer to this, but learning from what's happened in Parliament and elsewhere, is that you need to kind of de-escalate these things sometimes and create, whether it's within a department or somewhere in the Cabinet Office, uh, a place for complaints to go to be considered in a sort of calm and proper way um, that, yes, ultimately respects the Prime Minister's ability to hire and fire and that he's the he or she is the only person who can sanction uh, a minister, but just take some of the jeopardy out of these things so that you can resolve um, allegations of bullying or anything else in, in, in the way that they would in a more normal environment, which you know, doesn't mean that it should be a free for all making complaints, but nor does it, and nor does it mean that that um, uh, uh, that, that um, uh, you know every complaint should be handled in a in a low key way. But just to try and normalise this and try and get over some of the weird power dynamics that exist within private offices. While we're here, Jill mentioned some of our past work on being uh, an effective minister. And I should, of course, plug the IFG Academy. For anyone who wants to know what it takes to be a good minister, they can have a look at our website. It has already been an eventful week for the Prime Minister. He began with a speech on education, headed over to Belfast for the Belfast Good Friday Agreement anniversary celebrations and got caught up in a row over whether he properly declared his wife's shareholding in a childcare company. Sam, let's start with a speech. What stood out for you? Uh, not a lot, to be honest. It was basically a re-announcement of what we had at the beginning of the year uh, when they first told us that they wanted uh, everyone to do maths to 18. We have not really found out any more detail about how that's going to practically happen. The two big questions are what qualifications uh, are young people going to be expected to do if they're not doing A-levels? Um, and how on earth are we going to find enough maths teachers to teach maths beyond 16 when we don't have enough maths teachers as it is uh, and we have a major teacher recruitment crisis? I think within the education world, actually quite a lot of people buy the overall principle of doing maths to 18. We are unquestionably an outlier internationally in not doing that, um, but we didn't get really any further in resolving the practical questions about how that's going to happen. And it's pretty clear it's not going to happen before the election. And what sort of steps are we talking about needing to be taken to address those problems that, that you identify? It doesn't look likely that, given most of them presumably involve money, the government's going to be rushing at those ahead of the election. Right. So, I mean, on the, the technical problems around the qualifications are that we don't really have something... Uh, at the moment, that is suitable for people who don't want to do sort of A-level and haven't got the GCSEs that would really allow them to do A-level maths. But also, 
did get their GCSE, so aren't sort of doing resits, that there's a sort of gap of several hundred thousand young people where there isn't really an existing qualification that's suitable for them. So what are they supposed to do is, is one of the big questions. And he did appoint an expert panel that I think are going to try and answer that that question. But the, the bigger problem is, is the teacher recruitment one. And as you, as you say... The big problem with teacher recruitment at the moment, there are several, but one of them is is pay, and then we obviously have the ongoing pay dispute and strike action that teachers are taking, but we have the worst recruitment this year on record. We, we just do not have enough teachers coming into the system at the moment as it is, so then to add additional burden on top of that just seems entirely unrealistic unless you're going to try and tackle the teacher pay issue, which, as you say... Uh, creates a sort of economic uh, challenge that they don't want to face before the election. And the actual figures, I think I saw, but you'll know better than me, on on the number of lessons actually taught by people who have a maths degree in state schools are incredibly low, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, most, most young people doing GCSE will not be taught maths by someone with a maths degree. And that's kind of okay for GCSE because the level of maths is not too high. If you've got an A-level, you'll be able to teach at that level. But post-16, you really do need to have a degree um, to, to be able to teach. So it, it makes the problem even even more challenging. Jill, do you think this is a vote winner uh, for the Conservatives um, arguing about people studying maths for longer? I don't think it's a vote winner. I mean, it's one of those things that seems to go into the Rishi Sunak box of things Rishi Sunak wants to do because he really believes them in the same way as creating the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology was not a vote winner, but something that Rishi Sunak clearly clearly believed is right. And he clearly, with his background, thinks it's important for people to be numerate and numerate at a higher level. I think it's a really interesting question that Sam's raised, what is the nature of that post-16 thing? And I feel this very strongly as someone who was pressured by my parents not to do maths A-level because they thought I wouldn't you know, necessarily do as well as in it as I would have done in my others. And I've regretted that all my life because that has really sort of held me back. So actually, I'm actually with Richie Sunak to some extent on that. But I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, a-level maths is quite particular and quite difficult to do in many ways if you're not doing other sciences and physics and things like that. So it takes you off in quite a narrow maths direction. What I really think we need is a population that is more statistically literate, able to interpret data better, things like that, which aren't necessarily what we've seen as maths in a sort of you know strict academic sense, but actually are really important to functioning in a much more sort of data-rich society. I think that's really what the Prime Minister is getting at. So I think if there's some way in which we can extend the narrowness of A-levels with actually qualifications which are not super academic, but actually give people really important life-enhancing skills like use of data, like actually being able to... Uh, express yourself in a foreign language. I mean, some other things. And for people doing sciences, actually, you know, a bit more advancement on writing skills and things like that. I think that actually would be all to the good as a way of addressing some of that. But as Sam says, you can only do that if you actually have good people able to teach those subjects. And at the moment, uh, recruitment doesn't doesn't seem to be going very well. 
and the existing teaching cohort is already massively complaining about how overburdened they are to say, and by the way, could you add these things in? It's the sort of thing that will be taken up in lots of private schools if on offer and probably not available in state schools and further uh, expand educational inequality. Uh, the other thing that clearly we need to address, I think, is the fact that we have a sort of long tail of people who don't get qualifications that make them sort of functionally numerate at 16. And if I was actually saying, where do we really need to address things? It would probably be there as more of a priority than filling in that 16 to 18 gap. Alex, you lead our work on the civil service. And there's been also a a sort of long-standing complaint from from ministers and from others that, that the civil service isn't sufficiently numerate. This is an issue in, in lots of different sectors, isn't it? Yes, uh, I agree. And I mean, I'll come on to the civil service in a, in a minute, but there are a few few points to make on uh, make on that. I mean, on the on the, on the substance of the of the uh, you know the policy, I, I agree with what Sam and Jill were saying. I do think there's a there's a fair bit of uh, sneering about it on social media uh, and sort of saying how ridiculous it is to uh, to encourage this. I think if it's doable, uh, and I completely buy all of the qualifications that um, Sam makes about teacher recruitment and what the it is that we're talking about, and it shouldn't just be some sort of you know, sense of A-level maths. It seems, you know, it seems highly desirable both to improve uh, numeracy in those, uh, you know, up to the age of 16 and then after 16 as well, because I think there's, as well as everything that Sam and Jill have talked about, there's a sort of basic, you know, citizenship and uh, you know living your life aspect to this you know the ability of people to uh, understand mortgages or to uh, uh, understand how uh, you know uh, personal debt debt works which is basic stuff you know this is absolutely not a level but is important to to function in 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 the world in which we live on the civil service yes i mean i think it's worth recognizing the civil service is more numerate than it used to be there's more of a recognition of the value of uh, these skills. There are more scientists, engineers, uh, technicians. Uh, the uh, finance function is more professionalised than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago, when it was often the case that finance directors of departments weren't qualified accountants or, um, uh, you know, uh, could could easily have been arts and humanities graduates who'd never developed their, their numeracy skills uh, in, into the more kind of complex and or, or, or financial uh, field. Um, so it is better, but there's also, as we've written and talked a lot about, there's further to go. There is still a sort of humanities bias towards uh, the generalist civil service in in particular and also a, uh, a need, as, as, as we've written about, to get the deeper specialists in, the, the people who are never actually going to be able to develop the really deep, highly technical skills within uh, the civil service or inside government, but to be able to make the system more porous, to to bring those people in to work on particular projects and then for them to leave and go off and pursue academic or, uh, or other careers. Sam, where do you think the the Labour Party is on this? So interestingly, I think this is one area where Starmer and Sunak do agree. I think Starmer's quite supportive uh, in private of of the policy, and and then I think in, in in public has said not dissimilar things himself in the past. Of course, they're going to run into all of the same. Uh, practical problems with the policy uh, and they may decide that they want to prioritise other things because there's certainly going to be uh, plenty of challenges to deal with across the whole of government but, but even within this sort of education space and they're going to want to make a big pledge on childcare which will need a lot of time and resource as well. Um, but I think it has a chance of surviving. I suspect if it does it will morph into a wider post-16 review of, of, of what we do because... 
Sunak has, given he has very little time, is understandably trying to cram maths into the existing model that we have. But there is a broader issue with A-levels being very narrow, unlike many other countries, and, and a lot of young people only doing either humanities subjects or maths and science subjects. Um, and both Sunak and Starmer have sort of given some kind of level of support to the idea of having a British baccalaureate. But that's a very long-term, complex policy to, to get into place, given... Our entire university system is based on A-levels, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it might survive, but I suspect it will it will morph into a very long-term kind of one of those reviews that in five, five six years' time we're still talking about. We won't hold our breath. <laughs> so Sunak's been thinking about how to fix this country's maths problems, but does he have a plan to fix this country's obesity problem? That's the question we've been asking in a new IFG report. And the answer is, well, let's speak to the report's author to find out. IFG researcher Sophie Metcalf joins us now for her podcast debut. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Hannah. So what can you tell us about the government's plan to fix the obesity problem? Well, see, the government has a plan on paper, but it's not really the robust long-term strategy we need on this. Um, Many of the policies announced haven't been implemented So the latest obesity strategy we have is Boris Johnson's 2020 obesity strategy, which was much more ambitious than previous strategies and indeed welcomed by many health experts and campaigners. Um, It had things like advertising ban on um, foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar, more uh, restrictions on promotions in supermarkets um, and legislation for calorie labelling in the out-of-home sector. But uh, many of these haven't been yet implemented. I mean, the advertising ban has been delayed to January 2025. So I think we're yet to see evidence that... This was something, wasn't it, that that Johnson sort of became seized of the significance of of this as an issue after he had his brush with COVID and and felt that one of the factors that had had landed him up in hospital was that he himself was overweight, which was something that he acknowledged. So so that does really show that that the... um, it, it, it can be down to the conviction of an individual politician can give something imp- something like this impetus, but then when that politician is no longer there, that, that falls away if you haven't got a proper plan in place. That's exactly right. And, I mean, this is an issue because obesity is getting worse in, in the UK. It is, yes. Unfortunately, the UK now has the unenviable title of the third highest adult obesity in Europe, uh, behind only Turkey and Malta, significantly higher than comparable G7 countries like Germany, France and Italy. Um, In England, it's got significantly worse. So um, adult obesity was at uh, 15% in 1993, and it's nearly doubled to 28% latest figures in 2019. And this is a problem, you know, not just for people's health, um, especially in England's most deprived areas where obesity-related hospital admissions are 2.5 times higher than in the least deprived areas. But it's also a problem for the NHS. Um, It's costing the NHS an estimated £6.5 each year at the moment, only set to increase with our ageing population. Um, And it's a problem for the wider economy. It's estimated to cost 1-2% to of GDP through things like losses in productivity. And are there other countries that have managed to slow or even reverse increases in obesity, or is this just a common problem that we're we're grappling with? So it is a problem worldwide. Obesity has risen, risen globally. There are a few countries that have done remarkably better than us in um, curbing its rise, especially countries like Japan and South Korea, where they have 
much healthier national diets kind of ingrained there. And that has been through some interventionist policy as well. Um, But the UK is doing significantly worse than other European countries. And why do you think that is? Well, there's not complete clarity about why exactly that is. Um, People like Henry Dimbleby, who wrote the National Food Strategy, understand this area very well, will say it's kind of a a combination of our our history. Um, We moved um, away away from uh, producing our own food um, within the UK earlier than other countries. So um, we've been affected more by the changes in the global food system. Um, There's some that say it's to do with inequality. Um, But basically, there is a a process whereby our food system has become increasingly dominated by foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar and foods that are ultra processed. And that process seemed to have happened especially strongly in the UK. Alex, which government departments own this as a policy problem or who should be owning it? Well, this is exactly part of the part of the question. And uh, um, uh, Sophie and uh, uh, Tom Sass, our other colleague who worked on this, have been uh, looking into this in, in, in some depth. And it's one of the reasons actually why we wanted to look at a number of these kind of chronic policy problems or policy questions, as we've been calling them, because quite often it does seem that one of the reasons why they're so difficult to solve is because of the very, you know, IFG relevant questions about machinery of government and the organisation of government. So on, on obesity, it sits basically between two departments, the Department of Health and Social Care and uh, DEFRA, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And I think there's an interesting dynamic going on there because there's a, there are questions about the cross-government or cross-departmental coordination of, of, of obesity, but there are also reasons within each of those departments why um, obesity might not have been uh, treated with the sort of seriousness or, or the focus that it, that it needs. So there's the standard cross-government uh, issue. Department of Health sees it mostly as a DEFRA question. DEFRA sees it as a health question. Um, uh, health teams in the, in the DHSC uh, uh, look at it, you know, principally through through that lens. Um, uh, and, uh, and, Def- and and DEFRA comes at it more from the kind of food industry lens. And there's a coordination question there over it falling between the the, the two stools. But within the departments, you could say that in DHSC. That is a department that is very dominated by the NHS and the kind of hard-edged aspects of the healthcare system. There's a long-standing critique that public health and these broader preventative questions around health are uh, underpowered within DHSC. So that's a further reason why institutionally it doesn't always get the get the grip that it needs. And then within DEFRA, there is a critique. I sometimes think it's a bit overdone, but maybe that's just me as an ex-DEFRA civil servant, that DEFRA's, DEFRA's a bit captured by the food industry or the agriculture industry, the production and the manufacturing side of food food and so uh, isn't taking on these some of the the interests that you know clearly exist in different ways around uh, 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 around obesity and, and food production i also think within defra even though uh, uh, food is in the title of the department defra doesn't actually spend that much time or put devote that much resource to thinking about food as as food um it, it spends far more energy thinking about agriculture as a sector <clears throat> Or looking at, you know, understandably flooding and climate and, and adaptation and things like that. So food has often been underpowered, and it did take Michael Gove injecting political energy and almost deliberately putting in Henry Dimbleby, who was a non-executive director at the time, um, as a bit of a disruptor to try and, uh, you know, shock the department into spending a bit more policy time on on food. But all of those sort of institutional reasons have combined to to create this kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of path of least resistance almost that has led to the the the, the uh, negative outcomes that Sophie set out. 
The trouble, of course, is, is that Michael Gove commissioned the National Food Strategy from Henry Dimbleby. But by the time it was finished, Michael Gove had moved on inside government. And you rather got the impression that the new DEFRA ministerial team actually didn't really want this regard. It's a bit of a hot potato with lots and lots of difficult questions in it that it would really rather not address, which is why that sort of momentum has gone by. I think Henry Dimbleby's become increasingly frustrated with the lack of action, having thought that he actually set out uh, the need for a comprehensive food strategy. And that just goes to the sort of thing. It's quite interesting that ministers, tre- and this comes out very strongly from Sophie and Tom's report, that ministers tread so warily on all these diet-related issues. You can contrast that to an extent with another sort of big public health threats, you know, tobacco, where governments actually have more or less consistently over really quite a long time been prepared to use a battery of policy levers to reduce smoking rates quite dramatically. But because we all need to eat, because of sense, big sensitivities, I think, about cost of living, which derailed, I think, some of the Johnson strategy, uh, because of dislike from the libertarian wing of the Conservative Party, which informed Liz Truss's approach, you have ministers who really don't want to be seen to be lecturing people about diet, but also think that that's what you have to do as part of a food strategy. And I think that's one of the things that comes comes out quite well. And we also see those headlines. And it's quite interesting that poor Susan Jebb, the chair of the Food Standards Agency, made some relatively innocuous comments about obesogenic environments and things like that to the Times Health Commission, on which I think she's serving. And you know, the Times then reported it in full headlines about, you know, ban cake in the office, says mad woman, public health nut. And I think it's that sort of headline that deters ministers from really getting to grips with that. And yet we keep on picking up the bill, whether it's in terms of, you know, increased spending on the NHS, the stuff that Andy Haldane and others have been calling out about the impacts on productivity. The problem that we increasingly get this sort of what you might call morbidity wedge between life expectancy and healthy life expectancy, which is extremely costly uh, for the NHS, as well as meaning people are condemned to really poor life quality, which is a whole bunch of things. So a really good case for trying to do something about this. But, uh, but it really is an area where you get the sense that ministers you know, feel they're treading on landmines combined with the lobbying might of the food industry, which does seem to be a very effective set of lobbyists and can always say, well, foods are basic. You're trying to interfere with people's choices. You're putting up the costs of foods on which poor people really depend. So I'm not sure, you know, be interesting to see whether ministers are willing to adopt some of the initial steps that Sophie and Tom lay out in their report. I mean, on the politics, just very briefly, it's, it, it was really striking that on the day that the Henry Dimbleby um, uh, food report came out, Boris Johnson distanced himself from it immediately, despite everything we said about what he'd said previously around COVID. I think I remember rightly, he was giving a big speech, a rambling, uh, a odd speech, but a, a well-briefed speech on levelling up and was asked about this because it happened to be on the same day, uh, and he immediately distanced himself from it. And from that moment on, for these, you know, for, for political reasons, but also the institutional reasons, that to get any sort of traction on an issue like this requires the Prime Minister and the centre of government to be banging heads together. So it was immediately obvious that this was going absolutely nowhere, for as long as Johnson was Prime Minister anyway. So we'll see where it goes uh, in future. 
Sam, given the costs, uh, which Jill's mentioned there and really set out very starkly in Sophie's report, why do you think this is an issue that politicians aren't prepared to make themselves unpopular over? Well, I think there's there's several uh, things here. This goes obviously well beyond obesity as, as, as a problem. Uh, politicians have been talking about the importance of preventative health for decades. We've had any number of well-informed reports saying, making the really quite obvious point that if you stop people getting ill, it's better than letting them get ill and then paying for the consequences of that. And yet, you know, the last, if you look at the last of seven years, the, the public health grant has fallen by 24%. It's been the one bit of health care that's actually been cut, where, whereas hospitals have seen a big increase in, in funding. Um, so we keep going round the same circle. And I think it's just very... It's a, there's a structural problem in British politics that we are terrible at spending money on long-term priorities because of the way we do spending reviews, um, which are incredibly unstrategic things uh, and will always, in short, mean that Department of Health or, or any department is prioritising the short-term emergency problem and thus ends up cutting the, um, the, 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 long-term, the long-term priority. So I think, you know, as Alex was saying, in terms of, sort of departments, but also in terms of the way that we make spending decisions, there are just fundamental structural problems in the way mm-hmm. Westminster works that stop something that everyone will agree on in principle from actually happening. Sophie? What does your report recommend what to happen next? So I think our report recommends things across several different areas, but I think there's a kind of delivery aspect of it, which Sam alluded to there, that could kind of help support this space having a bit more kind of momentum and a designated space in politics. So we recommend um, the government develops a more kind of robust long-term strategy, things like very specific long-term and medium-term targets, identifying the critical critical dependencies you need to get there, more similar to what we've seen with um, like the net zero transition, of which there's quite a lot of comparisons with this issue too. We recommend that be delivered by a cross-government unit on food and health, which would help manage some of the cross-departmental issues Alex identified earlier between departments, kind of bringing together the strengths of the health department and DEFRA around the kind of common mission for which they are then both accountable as well, crucially. So we recommend that... Um, progress is properly scrutinised. The government legislate for the FSA to provide scrutiny, deliver an independent annual review in Parliament on the state of the nation's food, health, diet. Um, to kind of make this issue as important as it should be, given we know the costs. Um, linked to that, as we've all been saying, I think there needs to be a better national conversation about obesity policy. And I think the kind of squeamishness and fear of nanny statism we see is founded in some sense because the public don't like to be told um, by the government what to eat, clearly. And as long as they think that obesity policy means taking away things they greatly enjoy, communication isn't going to be successful. But they are also much more supportive of government interventions than I think is often assumed. You know, polling has indicated that majority support things like the advertising ban on foods that are high in fat, sugar and salt. And there's particular support for policies when they're focused around childhood obesity, because there is an understanding of the really limited extent to which children are able to make decisions about their food. Um, So our report recommends, for instance, things like citizens' assemblies, more citizen engagement on this, so government can actually really understand where the public are on this, but also that the government develops a better sense 
better set of principles around how it communicates this, you know, talking to the public about what the causes of obesity are, what the precise rationale for government action is, and how responsibility should be shared between government businesses, individuals and communities. And I think if we can have a serious kind of adult conversation about this, rather than kind of the inaction and the kind of fear of engagement that we've seen so far, we can make some real progress. Well, very interesting. Let's hope the government is listening and we'll be reading Sophie and Tom Sass's report, which is available on our website. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, Sophie Metcalf, and especially Sam Friedman. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do please leave us a review or consider subscribing. Visit our website where you can watch the great event which we used to launch our report on obesity, which featured former government advisor Henry Dimbleby, who we've been talking about, and check out our coverage of the fast approaching local elections. You can also sign up to watch next Tuesday's IFG event with Stephen Flynn, the SNP's leader in Westminster. What will we find to talk about? See you all next week.